So our scripture today is uh, on page 275. If you're using the scattered pew Bibles, I guess they're not really pew Bibles anymore. The scattered chair Bibles, that just doesn't flow though. Anyway, the black Bibles, you can find 2 Samuel 23 on page 275. So today we're going to, we come to the second of two closing songs that David penned that are recorded at the end of 2 Samuel. Two weeks ago, we looked at 2 Samuel 22 and saw this, this song, really this psalm, because when you compare 2 Samuel 22 to Psalm 18, you realize they're almost identical. Uh, but in 2 Samuel 22, what you see is David looking back on a life and a calling in which God has been faithful. And the whole focus is on God has been faithful up to this point. Now, this next song, Psalm uh, 2 Samuel 23, these first seven verses, these sort of look forward to anticipation of God's ongoing faithfulness, God's ongoing promise to keep his covenant forever. Um, now, normally I would point out to you that, uh, you know, the little subtitles above your, the passages aren't really inspired. They're not inerrant words of God. Uh, although this one is almost literally just the same as the author's own title at the beginning of verse 1. These are the last words of David. Now, last words, not in like deathbed last words or like the last things you ever hear from David, but more last words like farewell address. If you want the last words of David, you have to flip forward to 2 Kings chapter 2 and see his instruction to Solomon as he uh, prepares to hand over the reign to his son Solomon. But this is more of like last words, like think of, um, think of like George Washington and his farewell address. Although David is kind enough to keep it really short and put it, put it in poetic Form and whatever you believe about the blockbuster Hamilton uh, Broadway musical, uh, George Washington's farewell address was not short and it was not poetic. Now, it was nicely put together, little pieces cut out, but it's really long. Uh, I know because I looked it up. And, uh, but George Washington, in his farewell address, he, he kind of points out like three things that he wants this young new nation to be aware of and beware of. Uh, he says, he basically tells them, uh, beware of a party spirit of, um, what is it, of... Party spirit, foreign intrigue, and false patriotism. So these are the three things that George Washington, in his farewell address, warns the young nation of. And now we, so many hundred years later, see perhaps some of George Washington's wisdom and our lack thereof, because I don't know how well we've done in avoiding those things. But... It's, uh, you know, Washington's insight is just wisdom. And, and even though it, it, reading it now 200 years later, there's a sense of foreboding of like, wow, he really understood things. It's not prophecy, what he's offering. It's simply an understanding of human nature and understanding that like these are dangers in any nation. 
What David brings to us in his uh, much briefer farewell address is actually an oracle. In fact, he tells us twice. It's an oracle from God. Uh, These are indeed prophetic words, David speaking by the movement of the Holy Spirit. And David likewise has three things in this little poem that he is addressing. They're not so negative necessarily as Washington's, but he's, he, in essence, he speaks of the effects of God's covenant, uh, the, uh, the timeline of God's covenant, and the responses to God's covenant. So let's, let's stand for the reading of God's word. This is 2 Samuel chapter 23, just the first seven verses. Now these are the last words of David, the oracle of David, the son of Jesse, the oracle of the man who was raised on high, the anointed of the God of Jacob, the sweet psalmist of Israel. The spirit of the Lord speaks by me. His word is on my tongue. The God of Israel has spoken. The rock of Israel has said to me, When one rules justly over men, ruling in the fear of God, he dawns on them like the morning light, like the sun shining forth on a cloudless morning, like rain that makes grass to sprout from the earth. For does not my house stand so with God? For he has made with me an everlasting covenant, ordered in all things and secure. For for will he not cause to prosper all my help and my desire? But worthless men are like thorns that are thrown away, for they cannot be taken with the hand. But the man who touches them arms himself with iron and the shaft of a spear, and they are utterly consumed with fire. The grass withers, the flowers fade, and yet the word of the Lord remains forever. You may be seated. So again, what we basically are looking at, we're going to, not necessarily in a nice chronological order through the verse by verse, but what we see here are two effects of God's call. We see two timelines of God's kingdom, and we see two responses to God's anointed. Now, before we get into that outline, uh, David is not going to allow us any doubt whatsoever uh, whether uh, the hearers, when, they fir- when he first penned this, or us as readers today, uh, we are not allowed any doubt that these are the very words of God. So twice in the introduction of David, we're told this is an oracle, a message from God delivered through an agent. And then no less than four times in David's own introduction, he speaks of this as the very word of God himself. The spirit of the Lord speaks. His word is on my tongue. The God of Israel has spoken. The rock of Israel has said. And so this is not just David kind of thinking about his reign and what will come next and giving some words of wisdom. Uh, This is God speaking by his spirit through his servant, David. And so it is important for us not to just read as instruction for perhaps Solomon, but instruction for us as well. 
And so the first thing we see are two effects of God's call. The opening introductory lines are more than just laying out that these are words of God. David is saying these things about God, but he's also saying some very important things about himself. David says several things that reveal his own understanding and his attitude toward his relationship with God. And what we see here is that when God calls us to himself, we are both humbled and emboldened, or at least we ought to be. When we understand the covenant mercy of God with his people, it should make us very humble and at the same time very bold, which sounds like uh, an oxymoron or like those are paradoxes, but uh, I want you to see this in David. So first, his very first words, he says, this is an oracle of David, the son of Jesse. This is more than just David saying, like giving us his, I'm from good people uh, pedigree. This isn't just him saying, hey, I'm Jesse's son. Remember Jesse? Because who was Jesse after all? When David says he's the son of Jesse, we're reminded of 1 Samuel. We're reminded that Jesse is essentially a no-name, middle-to-upper-middle-class man living in a tiny village in Bethlehem. We don't know anything about him until we learn about David. The only reason we know Jesse is because we know David. But what we learn pretty early on is that David is the youngest of eight sons, plus some sisters. And he's basically the overlooked, underappreciated, overworked youngest child. Like when we meet David, we don't even meet David. We meet Jesse and his eight older sons and Samuel or his seven older brothers. And Samuel is there. He's ready to anoint the next king. God has rejected Saul. And here comes this wonderful strapping young man, David's oldest brother. And he's like, here he is. Look at this guy. And God's like, no, we're not doing that again. Uh, You might look at the outside. I look at the heart. And Samuel goes one by one by one by one, seven sons. And he's scratching his head because God keeps saying, no, no, no. And he's like... I don't understand. Do you have another son? And Jesse's response is basically, no? Yeah. Oh, oh yeah, I do. David. Oh yeah. (laughs) Where's David? Oh yeah, he's, uh, well, David, he's with the sheep. He's the shepherd. Like we are so used to Christmas nativity and beautiful scenes of shepherds and they're such wonderful people and they're so good and we forget that like the whole setup of shepherd in the, even through the Old Testament is to let you know that's the lowest job on the totem pole. That's the, you know, even with Cain and Abel, Cain gets the family business. You know, Adam's a gardener and he's like, hey, Cain, follow in my footsteps. It's, it's Adam and son. And then Abel, he's like, oh, go, go take care of the sheep. That's what you're supposed to feel when you hear about sheep and shepherds. That's what you're supposed to feel when we see the humility of Christ saying, I'm the good shepherd. Uh, but so, so David is, is, he's on the outside, but David recognizes this. He's unashamed to admit the humility of his upbringing, of his beginnings. I am David, the son of Jesse. And yet, I am the man who was raised on high. 
Yes, this is an oracle of the son of Jesse. This is an oracle of the one who was raised on high. It's still both humility and boldness here. David is the acted upon. He's not the actor. Now, David's son, David's Lord, Jesus, it can truly be said of Jesus that the father raised him from the dead. And it can just as truly be said that Jesus rose from the dead. But of David, only one of those can be said. David did not rise on high by his own power. David was raised on high by the will and mercy of God. This is true of all of us. We are raised in newness of life, not because of anything we have done, but because of what Christ has done in us. When I look at myself and my past, I should be filled with only humility. When I see Christ in me, the hope of glory, I should be filled with boldness. That if God himself has raised me through no act of my own, then it's God who's going to sustain me. I will never fall. I can come boldly to the throne of grace and know that the Father hears me because of Jesus. It's a boldness not because of what David has done. It's a boldness because of what God has done. David is the anointed king of Israel. But again, it's what God has done. But notice that he's called here the anointed of the God of Jacob. David says he's the anointed of the God of Jacob. Why does he call himself the anointed of the God of Jacob? Why not the anointed of the God of Isaac or the anointed of the God of Abraham? See, names are important. And we know this, like we know that names give meaning to the text, even of life. You know, how many of you, you know, old or young, you've all experienced this? Well, not what I'm about to say, because that would be really weird, but you'll catch on. You're sitting in your room. You're minding your own business. You're finding wonderfully uplifting and glorifying activities to accomplish in your bedroom. And suddenly you hear at the doorway, Leonard Allen Bailey And you don't even need the rest of the sentence. Now, obviously, again, you have to fill in your own three names. But, like, you don't get that three-name address, you know, when good tidings of great joy are about to follow. Like, that name brings context. Like, we have nicknames. If you have nicknames for loved ones, for for a spouse or for children, those nicknames are, are context. And sometimes those nicknames, if someone hears them and tries to repeat them, then you're like, hey, hey, yo, whoa, no. You do not call me that. That's a little icky. So, but names mean something. After Peter's denial of Jesus in Jesus' arrest and betrayal and crucifixion, you know, Peter's telling him at the dinner, he's like, you know, hey, even if the rest fall away, I will not. And then it doesn't even take a soldier. It takes a middle school girl accusing him because she recognizes his accent. And three times he denies that he even knows Jesus, let alone is whether he's following him or not. 
But then after the resurrection, they're at the seaside, they're at the, the, on the shore of the, the Sea of Galilee, and you remember they bring the, the miraculous catch of fish, and they're sitting there and they've finished breakfast, and do you remember what Jesus says to Peter, how he addresses Peter? He says, so, Simon, son of Jonah, do you love me more than these? Because Peter needs to remember and recognize and accept that in and of himself, he is of the flesh. In and of himself, he will deny Jesus the next opportunity he has. He doesn't have it in him. When the Bible, that by the way, refers to the God of Jacob more often than it refers to the God of Isaac, even more often than it refers to the God of Abraham. God is called the God of Jacob more often than he's called the God of Abraham in Scripture. Why? It could just be as simple as, you know, Jacob's, you know, the sort of, he's renamed Israel and he's the father of almost literally Israel because he has the 12 sons or the 10 sons and the two grandsons who become the tribes of Israel. So it could just be that. But his name was changed to Israel. And when God is called the God of Israel throughout the Old Testament, which is a a gazillion times, but uh, that's usually about God of the nation of Israel. But why the God of Jacob? And it could be, and I admit this is just could be, It could be that when God refers to himself as the God of Jacob, he wants us to remember that he is the God of the faithless, of the conniving, of the deceiving, of the untrusting and untrustworthy. He is the God of the one who would wrestle, of anyone who would wrestle with God all night and even in losing the battle, Demand that God bless him before he leaves. That's boldness. We would all love to think that we are more like Abraham or even Moses or even Boaz, David's great-grandfather. But what if there's more Simon in you than Peter? What if there's more 2 Samuel 11 David in you? than 1 Samuel 17. And you can go look those up. Because here's the thing. Simon didn't rename himself. Jesus renamed Simon. God renamed Jacob. In you, there is much to be humble over. But in Christ in you, there is much to be emboldened about. David is both humble and emboldened because of the security and reality of the grace and mercy of God's call. This brings us to the two time frames of God's kingdom. Basically, the heart of the message. Everything up until now has been introduction, both the introduction to David and then the introduction to the words of God here. Basically, the end of verse 3 and, the, and all of verse 4 are uh, essentially the announcement from God, and then the end is just a response to it. 
But here it is. When one rules justly over men, ruling in the fear of God, he dawns on them like the morning light, like the sun shining forth on a cloudless morning, like rain that makes grass to sprout from the earth. And when we see this passage, uh, we're supposed to remember uh, the two timelines or the two time frames of the kingdom of God and to remember uh, the already and not yet aspects of the kingdom. The kingdom of God is already here. In one sense, the kingdom of God was already here under, you know, on the earth and showing itself through the nation of Israel. Now, under the new covenant, the kingdom of God is already here on earth, showing itself through the church. And yet there are aspects of the kingdom of God that are not yet, that we wait for with longing and with anticipation. So yes, in one sense, these verses are a reflection on David's own reign, and they are an instruction to any who would reign over God's people, whether as kings or even as officers in the church. That when you rule in the name of God justly and equitably and righteously, when the fear and reverence and awe of God is your guide, then God will bless. God will bless not only your reign, but the people over whom you have authority. God will command blessings to be poured out on you and on the people. And David goes on to recognize that when he lived and reigned according to these words, God indeed blessed him in Israel. In verse 5, doesn't my house stand so with God? He has made me an everlasting covenant, ordered and secure in all things. Will he not cause to prosper all my desires? Even here in verse 5, David is fully aware that if his house is in fact living according to God's covenant promises and call, it is only because God has remained mercifully, compassionately, steadfastly committed to his own promises. God has ordered and secured this covenant. And certainly we've seen this to be true in David's own life, and sometimes by way of the opposite, We've seen the opposite true, that when David didn't live in righteous and just obedience to God or with a fear of God before him, that things were not, did not go well for David or even for the kingdom of God. And certainly we can recognize that this is godly counsel for David to give to Solomon and to even his grandsons after Solomon, or even to all leadership over God's people. Lead in righteousness, lead in justice, lead out of fear and honor and glory of God, and God will bless those that you lead. But is that, does that technically qualify as an oracle? Is that a prophecy? Isn't that just, I mean, it's godly wisdom, but it's technically it's not anything that we haven't heard before. Lead well, God will bless it's so simple and straightforward, it could even be banal. It could be just a simple platitude. I mean, it's like, a why, who needed you to say this? But David seems to be looking forward to and announcing even one who is actually going to reign not over Israel, but over mankind. In fact, he says, 
when one rules justly over men. And it's not like the, the Hebrew ish men or man, it's the Hebrew Adam or mankind. When one rules justly over all of mankind, one who will rule with the perfect fear of God, that one will bring with him only blessing. And blessing that will bless the entire created order. Even the earth itself will be blessed. That blessing will shine and sing over his creation. Like on a cloudless morning after a rain. When the sun comes out and it's clear blue. And the grass is still wet from the, from the rain. And it just shines with a vibrant green and the earth is refreshed, and the night is over, and hope springs out again. This is what David is trying to capture with these words, with these metaphors, with this imagery. He's under no illusions that, that he has ushered in this kind of blessing. He doesn't think his son Solomon is necessarily going to bring this blessing, but he knows God has made a promise that he'll never abandon the throne, that David's seed will sit on the throne, and somehow through David's seed, this type of worldwide, all of mankind blessing will come, and he looks forward to that with hope, this kind of full freedom and healing and, and shalom, as the Old Testament calls it, this peace that is more than just a lack of war, because God has made a promise and God's promises are so certain that, they, that you can speak of their future in reality. It's not a, a hope as in, oh, I hope this happens, but it's a hope as in, I have full hope and assurance that God will keep His promises. Verse 5, Does not my house stand so with God? For He has made with me an everlasting covenant, ordered in all things and secure, he, will he not cause to prosper all my help and desire? Or translate it another way, will he not cause to succeed my salvation and my desires? Do you realize that every desire you have that is not of sin or doesn't have a sinful taint to it, every desire you have God delights to fulfill. Every unsinful desire you have is part of the promise of the covenant. Isn't that amazing? Like we don't, like in Presbyterian world, we get nervous when you start talking about blessing being that possible, like that tangible. We're like, wait, 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 wait. I feel like you should turn back to the uh, total depravity section. And you'll get that in Sunday school, so just wait. God's promises are so, they're not just good in a pretend way. Like, they're actually good. Like, they're things to rejoice over. God actually delights to do good things for His children. God will cause your salvation to succeed. And He will grant you the desires of your heart. Those desires that are not mixed with sin. What we 
pray as God's children are, God, give me your desires. Let me hold in an open hand my desires. And those that you want to bless, fill me with humility and boldness to receive that blessing. And those you want to remove, give me the trust I need to know that you know better than I what is good. It's hard to believe that if this is the kind of kingdom that God is ushering in, that anyone would refuse it. Who would say no to that? I will secure your salvation and your desires to all who come to me. And then there are those who say, yeah, no, thanks. And yet this has been the case since the garden, isn't it? Like even God's own people have been wooed by an opposite offer. You can have the kingdom without the king. You can have it all without bending the knee. And what we learn at the end of this in a sort of a sort of a downer as far as psalms go, sort of ends on an unresolved minor key. There are two responses to God's anointed. This has always been true and always will be true. But worthless men are all like thorns that are thrown away, for they cannot be taken with the hand. But the man who touches them arms himself with iron and shaft as a spear, and they are utterly consumed with fire. It's interesting, this worthless men. It's the Hebrew word belial. Uh, It would eventually be adopted as a, a name of a false god, similar to Baal. It's a word that simply means worthlessness, and it's been a theme throughout First and Second Samuel, this idea. We learned in First Samuel 2 that Eli, the high priest's sons, were worthless men. We learned in First Samuel 10 that the first that when Saul became king, there were worthless men in Israel who refused to acknowledge it. In 1 Samuel 25, Nabal's own wife tells David that her husband is a worthless man, a son of worthlessness. Those aren't, by the way, the words for you women to write down as notes like, okay, so what what do I call my husband? (laughs) Even some of David's own men at the end of 1 Samuel chapter 30 are called Men of worthlessness. And the theme continues in 2 Samuel 16. After the civil war with Absalom, Shimei is called a man of worthlessness. And, and Sheba is called a man of worthlessness. There are always only two responses to the kingdom of God, to the king. Either receive and live or refuse and perish. Those are the only choices. The kingdom of God now and in the future includes both restoration and destruction. I know that today this is considered Old Testament-y kind of language. Like it's, it's, it might be true, but it's just not wise to talk about. And that's if we're even willing to admit that it's true. But it was Jesus 
Not David, not Moses, not Ezra. It was Jesus who said in Matthew 13, The Son of Man will send His angels and they will gather out of His kingdom all causes of sin and all lawbreakers and throw them into the fiery furnace. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Then the righteous will shine like the sun in the kingdom of their Father. Isaiah ends his long book of warning to the Israelites in Isaiah 66, and he brings the reader right up to the, to the edge of the chasm where you can feel the heat coming off and you can smell the sulfur. Why? Because he wants, he's just a downer and he wants to end on a negative note? No, because he wants to call you away from that. He wants you to turn and live. There are only two responses to God's kingdom. Receive it and live, or refuse it and perish. Receiving it means coming in repentance, coming in trust, coming in obedience to God. And just receiving that God raises you up. Not you, but God Himself raises you up. It's, it's admitting your past, not glossing it over or, or shoving it under a rug or, or justifying it, but simply admitting I am the son of Jesse. I am no more and no less. But in Christ, I'm so much more. And it's not seeking to say, look, this is what I'll do. This is what I can do to to prove myself. I'll do better. I'll try harder. But simply receiving Christ has done it. Christ has done what is needed. And so we come in humility and in boldness to the throne of grace. To the mercy seat. And we find forgiveness in Jesus' name. And we find the Holy Spirit poured out so that we can actually, for the first time, say no to sin and yes to Christ. And we come and we live and we follow. And we love our neighbors well because we know before them is the same two choices. Receive and live or refuse and perish. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you for your reign and pray that you would turn our hearts to you. Would you please fill us with a humility and boldness that we need to come to you, to confess to you and to receive the forgiveness that comes only in Jesus' name. Help us to live both in the already and in the not yet of your kingdom, knowing that we are here. We're in your kingdom. It is here. The kingdom of God is at hand. Help us to receive that and live in that, but also with anticipation of the beauty that one day you're going to come back and restore all things perfectly. And so we wait And we pray, come quickly, Lord Jesus. But we also pray because we know that there are only two choices and that when you come, it will certainly usher in your kingdom of of goodness and perfection and beauty, but it will also be the end of all who have refused to come to you. Jesus, would you give us your heart as you wept over Jerusalem? 
would we weep for our county, for our families, for our co-workers? We praise you and thank you, Lord Jesus, for all that you've done in us and for us. We pray that to you alone be the glory forever and ever. Amen.